Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. As you see on the board, Galatians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to specifically be drawing our attentions back to verses 6 through 9 in just a moment after a few introductory thoughts. The title of this message today is Keeping the Gospel Pure Amid Collapsing Cultures. Another subtitle could be Keeping the Gospel Pure Amid Deconstructing Societies. And beloved, in one sense or another, ever since the fall of man, all cultures, all societies have already or are in the process of deconstructing or collapsing. In fact, all of history we see this continual cycle, don't we? We see nations rising up and then nations falling. We see dominant kingdoms and dominant superpowers gaining uh, total control of areas, large masses of areas of the earth. And then we see another superpower come along who's bigger, badder, tougher, and they bring them down. Amid all of these collapsing human civilizations, all of these collapsing empires and all the various cultures that are attached to them is the church of Jesus Christ. In the midst of all of them, our confession of faith, rightly interpreting scripture, describes the church of Jesus Christ in chapter 26 as Christ's kingdom in this world. The church of Jesus Christ is Christ's kingdom in this world amid and surrounded by all of these empires and all of their various cultures that are, are, to some degree or another, collapsing. It becomes evident in Luke 4.43 very quickly that the Lord Jesus Christ concerning His kingdom in this world wanted to speak much of it. We find in the Gospel of Luke over 30 some odd times this phrase, the kingdom of God. And the message of our Lord Jesus Christ regarding the kingdom of God, regarding His kingdom in this earth, was the message of reconciliation. Luke 4.43 is the first time where it describes the Lord Jesus Christ pronouncing the good news of the kingdom. What was the good news of that kingdom? Chiefly, above all things, the good news of the kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, in this world was the message of reconciliation. As Paul observes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is the power unto salvation. The message of reconciliation, that the promised Messiah, all the way back at the beginning of all human civilizations, would come and what? Crush the head of the serpent. That He would deliver His people from the bondage and the captivity of darkness, blindness, and sin that they have sold themselves into. This message of reconciliation that Christ would uh, set free the captives, give them liberty, all all of the things in the old covenant can never do, it has begun. It's here. It's started. And then it's connected with this beautiful promise He gives us that He will continue to build it, His kingdom, one soul at a time until the end of this age. And until that time, He what? is doing that. He's expanding His kingdom. Every single person that's converted is an expansion of Christ's kingdom amid these collapsing cultures. And of those that are 
brought into this citizenship, that are covenantally brought into this kingdom through faith, through the message of reconciliation. The the Bible beautifully describes us as citizens, and then Paul more specifically, uh, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he describes us as ambassadors. And so, generally speaking, an ambassador is someone who is representing the position or the message of the king or the sovereign. And what? Relaying that message of the king's kingdom and the king's position, representing his kingdom, to other kingdoms, other officials, other men. And, and we're described as ambassadors. Furthermore, to enhance this view of your responsibility as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, my responsibility as a citizen and ambassador of Christ's kingdom, to enhance that view of what we've been entrusted with, 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says that we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. The risen Lord, the risen King of His kingdom in this world is setting, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, at the right hand of the Father, accomplished the inauguration of His kingdom in this world, among these collapsing cultures, among these other human civilizations, and He has entrusted you and He's entrusted me with this good news, Luke 4.43, of His kingdom in this world. This message of reconciliation. He's entrusted it, brother, to you. This duty... This weight, this sober responsibility to be faithful ambassadors is really what I want to draw into singular focus in this message of keeping the message of reconciliation pure amid collapsing cultures. And to do that, I want us to first look at the example of the Apostle Paul here in Galatians. The Apostle Paul demonstrates for us in the book of Galatians that he had a jealous zeal that he wanted to keep the gospel pure from any mixture of error. And then after that, we look at that um, example of, uh, of perfect ambassadorship. I want us to look at things that uniquely threaten the purity of the gospel. First, from one historical instance of the church amid one of the most tumultuous times of any society that the church found herself among. And then I want to look at some recent times in our own modern history of things that uniquely threaten the purity of the gospel. That, beloved, I want you to be guarded against. I I want you to have discerning ears. I want want you to be watchful. Because at the end of the day, as we seek to answer the problems of collapsing cultures and worlds around us, at the end of the day, Our sole task, our chief task, is to be faithful ambassadors of the good news of the kingdom that is the purity of the gospel. And while we can during our fellowship time, and perhaps next Sunday we'll have a follow-up message of how we're to be salt and light out in these collapsing cultures, let us first become settled on this one truth, this one principle, That within the household of God, the kingdom of Christ, our message of the good news of the gospel of reconciliation, we will not tolerate, become indifferent to, impurities ever being mixed with it. Let us start there first. 
we come to the book of Galatians. And we have a situation where there are some things wanting to become mixed in with the purity of the gospel. And we see, as I mentioned earlier, this imminent example of the Apostle Paul being jealously um, concerned and, and guarded about the purity and maintaining its purity. Let's read verses... We'll start at verse 1 and read down to 9. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Well, it's very apparent just on the surface here without doing a bunch of introductory background work of what's going on here. Despite those who are bringing in trouble, which in this case was the Judaizers, I know many of you are familiar with this passage of the scripture. Uh, I was preaching this at a pastoral fraternal, so I assume a lot of people already knew the, the background situation here in Galatia that was going on. But without that background information, we see very apparently from verses 6 and 7, Paul was concerned of uh, what he calls another gospel. This gospel, which is an impure gospel. It's not the one gospel that a couple years previously that he administered and he preached to them. Look at verse 6. I want, to, I want to draw something out for you here. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into his grace of Christ unto another gospel. The word another there in the Greek is heteros, which some of your modern translations will rightly translate, and I think it's a better translation, different. Right? So Paul's saying there in verse 6, with that use of the heteros word, that he preached the gospel, the one true, true, pure gospel, and that he's marveled at the fact that they are so soon removed to another, different. Notice this one's out here. I'll, I'll make it a lowercase g, right? Because that indicates it's not the gospel. It's entirely different. It's way over here. In verse 7, he uses the word translated in the English, another, but it's a different Greek word, alas. And alas is, in numerical sense, another. So it's as if Paul's saying, I'm, 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 I'm really marveled that you guys are so removed at looking at another gospel. This is, in the context of where we're finding this, another gospel that's pointed away from justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's different. It, yeah, it's not even... Then he says, in verse 7, you can't have anything that's another gospel numerically bringing inside the true gospel. I'll put a lowercase g inside that circle. 
He's making it very clear. There's one true, pure gospel. Anything outside of that is either a different gospel, and anything you try to bring into that sphere right there of the one true gospel now makes that another gospel. Not the pure gospel. Well, in Paul's theology, in Paul's biblical preaching of the gospel, if we could put a Webster's Dictionary to Paul's gospel there on the board with a capital G inside the circle, what would it be? Well, John Gill helps wonderfully here. He says that the gospel here in Galatians that Paul's referring to contain two fundamental principles. And he wanted to make sure that that gospel remained pure. Here's the two fundamental principles Gill offers. The first one is that fallen men are, quote, restored to divine favor entirely on account of the doings and the atoning sufferings of Christ. Well, what is that, beloved? That's the doctrine of... Come on, come on. Only a Christ. <laughs> Dear head, like, look, it's okay. Christ alone, right? That's the first principle that Gil offers that Paul preached in the gospel that he's wanting to keep pure. And we would say, amen, Paul did do that. Entirely on the account of the doings and atoning sufferings of Jesus Christ, Christ alone. And secondly, Gil offers that men are interested in these sufferings and doings of Christ entirely by faith, which is, Scott? Faith alone. The doctrine of faith alone. Amen. That's the gospel. That's the message of reconciliation. By Christ alone, through faith alone. Gil goes on to say, beloved, listen carefully, because we're building, we're building on points here. Any message which does not agree with or adds to, adds to, that's the arrow. These principles, Christ alone through faith alone, must be rejected as being something other, Gil's words, i.e. where I got my title, other than the pure gospel of Christ. The pure gospel of Christ. Paul is, in verses 6 and 7 here, in a way, in fact, very clearly saying, it is impossible to have anything different or bring anything alongside the gospel that I preached based upon these two principles Gil just offered and have still a pure gospel. You have an impure one. Now, when you first read this, especially in verses 6-9 through nine, with all the language about a cursing, you know, and all this harsh, strong language, you, you can almost get a sense that Paul is overreacting and, and, and now, now the good Christian in Peter here would say, well, of course not. That's what the Bible says. So Paul's not overreacting. That's absurd. Now, but beloved, there's others who want to try to look at and interpret the scripture in such a way that says, well, I know he wrote that at that time, but he was overreacting perhaps to something that was just going on in Galatia. And now in this modern context, you know, uh, we don't have to take it so literal, this, this strong language. Uh, you know, and these other caveats are offered as, as to where we're not really understanding Paul. So, so is there anything else in Scripture that offers us any foundation or reason of why Paul was so jealous to guard the purity of the gospel? And why then you and I as ambassadors ought to also be very concerned about guarding the purity of the gospel? Well, there is. 
Turn to Galatians 4.11. In the midst of this epistle that he's writing to this church, we begin to see unfolded the things that were attempting to be brought alongside the gospel. And he's, he's dealing with a lot of that. And he comes to chapter 4. Um, now I say that the heirs and all heirs of the child differ nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Uh, there's people that are really trying to make their lineage from Abraham, these Jews, as being something that accredits them, you know, with being able to bring things alongside the gospel, so forth and so on. One reason why Paul was so concerned about maintaining the purity of the gospel was for and because of the souls of men. He understood, as we announced or we observed earlier in Romans 1 16, that the pure gospel message of the kingdom, that was the power. That was the instrument by which Christ would expand his kingdom. It was the power unto salvation. He had a love, Brother Scott. He had a concern for the souls of men. We see this in verse 11. I am afraid of you, or better translation before you. I'm afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. In other words, tampering with this idea of bringing, for my purpose today, something alongside the one true gospel, other impurities, he was concerned that there were those in the visible professing church that could get caught up in the otherness of this arrow. And guess what? Do one of these, a big fat Yui. Kind of get caught up in the other aspect and evidence themselves never to have truly believed the one true gospel. And at the end of the day, be found outside of the covenant community because they got caught up in the stream of the other things that got brought alongside the one true gospel. That's what's behind verse 11. But not only for the souls of men was Paul concerned as an ambassador of Christ, as an apostle to maintain the purity of the gospel, but also because of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. To mix or bring anything alongside the one true pure gospel message that Paul first preached to them, in his mind would detract from the glory of Christ as that glory is displayed in the humiliation of Christ upon his crowning work in all of his ministry. And that was him giving his life as a ransom for the sins of his church, the citizens of his kingdom. Don't we ever dare, Paul's concerned here in Galatians, to bring anything alongside that crowning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It and it alone is to be the pinnacle, the apex, the nucleus in biological terms of the message of reconciliation, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a lot of other things were swirling around in the church. And Paul very distinctly said to them, he said, Brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech of wisdom of words, declaring unto you the testimony of our God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In that midst of issues going on in the church, what was he doing with that statement, beloved? He was hitting the reset button, wasn't he? He was getting them back to the true, pure gospel. You guys are getting off track. Come back to the glorious work of Christ in this message that He's entrusted you with and, and, and take it 
Acts 1.18, believe it's Acts 1.18, maybe Acts 1.18, somewhere there. Take it to the ends of the world. Take to the ends of the world. Like Paul, beloved, we should see and be jealous for Christ's glory in the gospel with razor-sharp precision that we would never allow any other issues to ever come alongside in our language, in our preaching, as gospel issues. Because the pure gospel of Christ that Paul preached, guilt unpacked, it is a perfect masterpiece. A perfect masterpiece. You guys know in the book publishing effort that we've been involved with as a church, and, and specifically some of us trying to print these books, um, I've been having to try to find uh, potential artwork for covers that we could use that's not copyrighted. And I, I kind of think that, or I've, I felt like, you know, that some of the best artwork cover would be from like the 16th, 17th century era. And so I've kind of been looking around and things, and things of that nature. And I, I've become fond of Rembrandt. Now, I, I know that our church, you know, you're, you're art scholars and you guys go to a lot of art museums and things of that nature, but, but just go with me for a little bit here with the illustration. What if I brought a Rembrandt painting in here? Right? It's a masterpiece with the skill and the craftsmanship of painting, that is. And, and, and work with my, with my illustration. And I put it up here and I say, and we're all like these, we've all been to university, right? We've all been to school and trained artists. And we're all just like, oh, yes. And look at that. And, and how he, uh, there's this Puritan painting of uh, these Puritans who were in charge in those days of, it was a guild for drapers for drapes that you hang on windows and, and around other things. And th- they had to, they, they were the guild to make sure that, you know, the dimensions, the color, the sewing, the stitching, and all that was according to perfection, right? And, and Rembrandt, when he painted that, yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an art scholar now, right? Rembrandt, when he painted that, he would put, he had one man with his Puritan hat on standing up because, so you wouldn't see them all level you would see there would be diversity of the painting. So we're all, I got it up here on the stage and we're all looking at it and Grizz says, oh yes, and, and notice how he's got the angle looking down and up. True masterpiece, just true masterpiece. And what if I said, well, Brother Grizz, yeah, that's nice, but hey, don't you think, don't you think, Grizz, that it, we just need a white blob of paint right here? Just kind of smear it right there. I mean, it's too much black. All those guys, those Puritan guys were all black, you know. I mean, let's just put, like this one guy, let's give him a white jacket. I mean, that would make him kind of pop out a little bit. And, and then Grace says, yeah, and I think, too, that we ought to add a hint of a red. It's just kind of drabby. Make it bright red, Brother Doug. And, you know, and then, and then a, a smidge of green here. And, and everyone else, as me and Grizz are wrapped up in bringing these other things alongside this masterpiece, all of you guys will be like, what are they doing? They're ruining that masterpiece. I can't believe these guys. These guys are crazy. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we do as men well intended. Me and Grace changing the masterpiece here. We've got good intentions. We love Rembrandt. We love his works. But I just think it needs a little help. Paul's saying, you can't do that. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is perfect as it is and as he preached it. He doesn't need you to bring other things alongside it, to attach to it, to motivate his church. To lift their hearts up to the glorious work that he did for them upon the cross. You just need to preach the cross. Preach the cross. The pure gospel of Christ. I think we can see something else in verses 6-9. through Let's go back to chapter 1. Regarding Paul's concern for the purity of the gospel, when we observe his attitude toward those 
who wanted to make the gospel impure and add impurities to it, don't we? In verses, uh, particularly 8 and 9. Now, these people that were wanting to do this, let me just say, without wasting a lot of time unpacking it, they were individuals who came into the church community who didn't denounce Jesus as Lord. They spoke much of Jesus. Perhaps, this is subjective, they were very trained in the language of religion, the language of the Messiah. In fact, they would say, hey, we love Jesus just as much as Paul loves Jesus. But the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached and Paul uh, taught and, and Paul preached, we want to enhance it, right? Going back to the painting. We want to make it more holistic, more dynamic with the entire redemptive story. And in this case, in Gal- the Church of Galatia, the seed of Abra- the physical seed of Abraham's role in that story, we just want to enhance it. In other words, they had an outward alliance, a pietistic confession and alliance with the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And they wanted to not so subtly bring things alongside it. That's exactly what made them so dangerous. Because anyone who begins to read church history, study church history for any length of time, it's usually the ones that seem to be so well articulated in the gospel of Christ, in the things of Christ, who are usually allowed to ever so subtly bring things alongside that gospel, unnoticed or tolerated, until it has cracked the door enough where everyone's accepting the language of error before the next thing you know, people are swept up in the illustration on the board. They're outside of the circle and are completely unorthodox. This is why Paul speaks the way he does in verses 8 and 9. Notice with me here what he says. His attitude toward those, again, expressing as an ambassador his zeal to guard the purity of the gospel. Though we are any angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats the same charge in verse 9. James Haldane, an old particular Baptist minister, he offers this good observation at this denunciation here. And I'm, I'm op- okay, here he says. He says, these verses in 8 and 9 are best expressed briefly as this, an attitude of total denunciation. And then Haldane offers this. He says, the denunciation in 8 and 9 can be observed firstly as being thorough. It's very thorough. It wasn't hasty. We see that because he says it in verse 8, unless his original audience say, oh, he's just got some pent-up anger. He's got some pent-up emotionalism. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he loves the gospel, you know. Paul said, no, 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 I'm not going to allow anyone to misinterpret me in, in this letter. The inspired Apostle Paul repeats the exact same thing in verse 9. So his zeal for the purity of the gospel and his attitude toward those who could potentially bring in impurities or desire to do that, he's saying this is a very thorough and a very thoughtful apostolic denunciation that the men who do that ought not to be tolerated. It's thorough. Thus the repetition. 
But the denunciation, notice as well, it's impartial. It doesn't matter who the person is, how articulate they are, how favored they are in the covenant community of Christ. Everyone who seeks to bring in anything inside that circle along the one true pure gospel is not to be considered beloved, no matter how helpful they seem to be, as some harmless, eccentric, harmless, contemporary commentator. When they bring things and brand things that are issues of the gospel with the gospel, Paul says impartially, he says we. I think he's talking about an authorial e. we. It's not an apostolic council. I don't, I don't believe so. But it would have been if they would have met. But he's saying we are any angel preaching at the gospel. Let them be accursed. So you see from verses 6 and 7 the aspect of the purity of the gospel and then his attitude toward those who would seek to make anything alongside the gospel as being impure. We can tell from this Paul as an ambassador who he knew he was entrusted with this message was to maintain its purity and never let it be neglected. Do you feel that way? You should. You should. When Christ opens your eyes to the glory of His work upon the cross for you, personally, that's what salvation is. It's an individual sinner recognizing their ill-deserving mercy and grace that they receive from God through their Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, and upon your profession and your confession and through the waters of baptism, you are pledging, I will with all of my uh, sanctified ability, all of the enabling grace you give me, O God, I pledge that I will maintain the fidelity of this pure gospel as the church in past has always done through this imminent example of the Apostle Paul. Just as a side note, the Apostle Paul gives us wonder, wonderful examples, even in the book of Galatians, of how to handle, handle erring brothers who get into this. There are some people that were coming to the church who were not even Christians that were attempting to do this. But then there were brothers. Remember Peter getting confused, right? Confused in some categories. And Paul gave a right attitude of how to interact with Peter. But at the end of the day, before moving forward, we see that we are entrusted to keep the gospel pure. Now, we are Christ's kingdom in this world, but not of this world. And there's collapsing cultures and collapsing societies. And if you don't believe that the West, and America included in the West, isn't in hyperspeed deconstruction, you are willfully remaining ignorant. You don't have to watch the news very long. You could talk to the farmer that I talked to. He's 80 years old. He came over to buy a piece of hay baling equipment. And you just heard this man talk how this is a different American than it was when he was 40. He's, he's going, he was a Christian. He's just naming things, which we're all familiar with. Beloved, those are signs of a civilization collapsing, deconstructing. You and I are the church in that. And it, 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 it presses upon us then unique temptations to change our gospel. And the purpose of my message today is to help you as the sheep of Christ, as you're out in these pastures of this collapsing, deconstructing society, 
Remember what you've been entrusted with and maintain its purity, no matter how you seek to interact with that collapsing society. I want to do that showing you, first of all, from history, one example of how the church, men from our own Reformed stock, reacted the wrong way. And it caused their gospel to become impure. This is uh, from a movement in the 17th century England known as the Fifth Monarchy Movement. And to really understand and appreciate the Fifth Monarchy Movement, you have to have the backdrop of the social and the political upheaval of England at this time. That these men who loved the church, they loved the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel, they allowed the social and political upheaval to threaten the purity of their gospel that they ended up at the end of the day preaching. The Thirty Year War, 1618 to 1648, was this clash of who's going to control the earthly kingdoms, the earthly civilizations in Europe. Was it going to be Roman Catholicism or was it going to be the various branches of Protestantism? So you got this Thirty Year War, bloodshed being spilled all over uh, Europe. Um, The normal day-to-day activity being interrupted. Commerce being interrupted. And then closely following that, very closely following that, after the Roman Catholic Empire and their efforts to control the kingdom got pushed back, the Protestants began to fight amongst themselves. And you got the three English civil wars. So within England and after the bloodshed of the three English civil wars, you have the rise of this movement called the Fifth Monarchy Movement. The best way, I think, for you and I to appreciate or understand the collapsing of all of Europe and the deconstructing of what was going on is, as I was thinking about this for you and me, do you guys remember just in the last couple of years what we were watching on the internet and what we were watching on our television screens? Does anybody have a television, by the way, anymore? Yeah. Do you? Hey, okay, great. I, I, yeah. I'm like, I, I, like, I get all my news and everything you know, online, but... Uh, well, we were watching all of this BLM protesting going on, burning all of the major cities in our, in our nation. And then we saw what happened at the Capitol building. And didn't all of us, I mean, I, I, I hope that you would have been like, this isn't the America, that, we're not going to be the same after this. Something's changing here. Uh, these are signs of a deconstructing society. Um, something's changing. Take all of that, what you were feeling, what you were seeing, take that times ten to the 10th level, that is the backdrop that gave rise to the 5th monarchy men. Now their name is interesting because, first of all, I think it's a cool name, the 5th monarchy men. Um, If it didn't have this negative history, we could, you know, maybe start another movement like this, but their name was based on their interpretation of the book of Daniel. The prophecies in Daniel, the four dreams, they interpreted those dreams as being or representing kingdoms or empires. There was the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greek, and then the Roman Empire. And they believed after the collapse or the pushing back or the, 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 the defeat of the Roman Catholic Empire, they believed that the Ancient of Days, the Lord Jesus Christ, would set up upon earth his kingdom that would be ruled and governed by his saints for eternity. Now his saints, of course, and the church that would rule this government or it was, of course, a Puritan Protestant type church, right? They were, they were Puritans. And they believed that this was what was going on. They're looking at the collapsing culture around them and going, now's the time. It was their doctrine of end times in connection with this prophecy from Daniel, in connection with what was going on around them, 
those two things, that caused Lewis Fargo Brown in his book, it's not published anymore, but you can still find it on the internet, called Baptists and Fifth Monarchy Men, to suggest that this, their, their end time view, and the upheaval of society around them, to conclude that this gave way to the idea that Christ's fifth and final monarchy was drawing near, and after much war and tumult, would be consummated upon earth, heaven on earth. Now, the true spirit of the fifth monarchy men and their movement can be captured wonderfully in this poem that was attributed to one of their early leaders, Thomas Harrison. And the poem goes like this. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. So you hear the spirit there that we're going to go down in a blaze of glory. I will not cease from the mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till I have built Jerusalem on earth in England's green and pleasant land. And these men truly believed, indeed, they strive to set up the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ upon earth through, as they say in their own writings, the preaching of the gospel. But the preaching of the gospel, according to Harrison, in just one instance of his writings, could not be separated from the social reforms of Zion, even if, even if it required the sword. What did Harrison just do there when he said that? Couldn't be separated. The gospel that they preached to usher in the fifth and final monarchy could not be separated from the social reforms of Zion, even at the use of the sword. He brought in that call to bring the social reforms of Zion next to the gospel. Now, sure, surely we can see from these distorted views of the gospel that these men allowed their eschatology and their understanding of prophecy in connection with the collapsing culture around them to change the purity of their gospel. He brought it in next to the gospel. As good Protestant Puritans, their gospel did, yes, point sinners to Christ and Christ alone for their only hope for salvation. But now, not so subtly, he's added something to the gospel. Now what's noble about this, I mentioned earlier, that not a few of our particular Baptist forefathers got wrapped up in this mess. One of the signers of the First London Confession, Paul Hobson, he got involved in a conspiracy and uh, he got swept up because an informant ratted him out. And he got ratted out, and a lot of those that were with him got ratted out, and they were in prison, and some executed, and he escaped execution because he turned uh, a witness for the king. Another pastor, or the first signer of the First London Confession, was Thomas Gower. He was the founder of the Newcastle Church. He also got caught up in a plot known as the Northern Plot, which, again, was in this movement. But thankfully, A.C. Underwood, the historian, records for us in his book, A History of the English Baptist, that the majority of the particular Baptists in London, they disavowed this other gospel. They, dis, they, they wanted to distance themselves from these men that were adding these things to the purity of the gospel. Now, these other particular Baptists had their own political theory during this time, but this of the fifth monarchy men, this impurity of the gospel, they rejected, and so they published a work, and they printed it and you know, passed it out. It was called The Humble Apology of Some Commonly Called Anabaptists. And notably, some of the men who signed it were William Kiffin 
and John Spilsbury. And Brother Scott, you were talking about John Spilsbury just a moment ago. John Spilsbury, one of the early patriarchs of the Pitcherbaxes, he signed it as well. Well, this is just a snapshot. There's other instances of this in the collapsing culture of England at that time. And you would like to think, brethren, that since the 17th century, we've all learned from these mistakes. You would like to think, right, that, yeah, we know we've got to keep the gospel the gospel, and our interaction, no matter what that is, in collapsing cultures around us, from making the gospel impure. But lo and behold, we're still dealing with it. In 2018, it come front stage and center in the evangelical community was the woke movement, right? And while the woke movement was really, for those who were paying attention, building up steam, Tyler, in the 21st century, it wasn't until the publication of that book called The Woke Church, an urgent call for Christians in America to confront racism and justice, coupled with the 2019 resolution from the Southern Baptist Convention, known as Resolution 9, which was to accept neo-Marxist critical race theory in order to bring alongside the biblical means of witnessing evangelism, did it really take front and center stage? That's when everybody kind of woke up. Hey, wait a minute. There's a shift. There's a, a little addition that these men are articulating are part of the gospel. No, no, no. We can't have that, right? And everybody reacted. And everybody started to begin to... Uh, Reveal the mask. Take the mask off the woke movement. And, 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 and begin to teach everybody and inform the church. Thankfully they did. Of what these seducers of making the gospel impure were really up to. Now to really capture what was behind and, and, and inform you of some of the language of how this looks. Just like Harrison back in the 17th century did it. Listen to a quote from a guy who was a proponent of the woke movement. Identified himself as a minister of the gospel. He says, quote, it is a truncated gospel. There's a key phrase you listen for. So in that sense, there's a truncated gospel. No, Chris, there's another gospel that's not a truncated. Which one are you going to hold to, Chris? Right? You hear the language there. It's a truncated gospel that fails to connect Christ's work on the cross with the collective good of society. Therefore, to combat social injustices, pastors, church leaders, and church planners must proclaim, here's another phrase, the whole gospel. That sounds very close to what Thomas Harrison was saying. Except Thomas Harrison would have been on the opposite side of the spectrum than this woke guy, right? Well, beloved, let's all admit that there are a lot of biblical injustices in this world because it's a sin-sick, dark world, right? But correcting those through social reforms, whether in Harrison's time with the sword or within this woke pastor's view of protesting, changing legislation, whatever, neither one of those could be branded as the gospel. You preach Christ and Christ crucified, you don't have a truncated gospel. You got the gospel that Paul preached. How dare this man, how dare these woke Leaders try to confuse the church of Christ with her sole mission on this earth as his kingdom is expanded by the conversion of souls one at a time. We clearly see, don't we, that in the woke movement, in their attempt to contextualize, at least in their minds, to purify, make whole the gospel in our, in our churches, in order to make it relevant to the problems of the postmodern collapsing culture around them, they've actually not made it whole, Sarah. They haven't, Brother Grizz, made it more pure. They've made it impure. 
They polluted it. And it can lead back to Galatians 4.11, many people astray. Now as I'm winding down here and closing today's message, it's very interesting to me. And as a pastor, and as an ambassador of the gospel, like Paul, that it's supposed to remain pure, I'm especially alarmed that men who have, over the last few years, stood against, rightfully, these woke pastors for making and adding to the gospel themselves now using language that sounds as if they're making the same mistake. I don't know what to call this movement. It's new. It doesn't even have a name. I would call it, the more I think about it, the neo-moral majority movement amongst the Western church and specifically in America. Some of us in here are old enough. I'm definitely not old enough. I, I heard this term. I had to go back and do a little research. But the moral majority, I'm calling this movement, what I'm observing right now, the neo-moral majority movement. The moral majority movement was based upon a Baptist minister by the name of Jerry Falwell Sr. It began in 1976 by him going across America preaching a series of sermons under the theme, I Love America. They were known as the I Love America rallies. And what Falwell was attempting to do was raise awareness of valid, again, underline the word, they're valid, beloved, valid social and political issues of great importance that were affecting Americans with this intent according to their own website to advance, quote, an evangelical revolution which will help religiously conservative politicians become elected in order to bring meaningful Christian reforms to both federal and state legislation. Sounds like just a grassroots movement, political movement, right, amongst religious conservative people. Okay, great. Maybe I'll go to this and check it out. And you want to get a guy who is a, is a, is a confessing Christian to be elected? Yeah, hey, I'd much rather have this guy. Amen? I mean, what kind of political theory would you have as a Christian that would want an outright atheist to be, you know, a leader over our, our laws and our, our, our rules? They were seeking to promote, through legislation, the promotion of traditional family values, opposition to media outlets that promoted anti-family agendas. They were seeking to uh, promote the total prohibition of abortion. And they were seeking to oppose, you know, through their rallies and things of that nature, opposition to state recognizing or accepting of homosexual acts. And all of a sudden here would be like, yeah, those are good things for society, right? We would have donated money to him. We would have helped Mr. Falwell. But let's go on. For Jerry Falwell and those who were part of this moral majority, which was an organization that eventually came, uh, I, think it, I think it dissolved, if I remember in my uh, studies and research, it was at the end of the 80s or the early 90s. For him and those who were part of the moral majority, the gospel of the Christian church was to be articulated as something much more encompassing than simply being forgiven of sin and going to heaven. It including, according to Falwell, and here's a quote, here's where your red antenna should be going up, as an ambassador of Christ entrusted with the gospel and its purity, it included, quote, a call. There we go, right? Whenever someone says the gospel isn't just, and they're going to tell you what it is, you draw that circle. What are they going to bring in that circle? 
It includes a call to create, according to Falwell, an integrated social platform through which conservative Christians can reverse the attacks on the traditional concepts and values of the American family. No, Jerry Falwell, that's not a gospel. It's things that need to be done, but it's not the gospel. I agree with you, brother. These things are happening in our collapsing culture, but, but Mr. Falwell, you know, let's not lose focus of, of, of what is the real power if we preach it with authority and truth that will organically transform what you want to happen. You, you can't confuse the message. You're, you're going to get everybody off track. So with all of that said, I want to read you something that I believe now is a modern day Jerry Falwell and what I'm identifying as the neo-moral majority movement. So this is a quote from someone who's largely identified with by conservative Christians, some of which who identify as even being reformed. And listen to this quote. This is just from a few months ago. And this isn't unique to him. We're hearing this language more from men who just a few years past were fighting the fight against the woke movement because they were shifting their language and adding things to the gospel. Now listen to what this man says. The gospel is not just about getting saved so that you can go to heaven. First of all, it's greatly minimizing the crowning cross work of Jesus in that. That ought to be your first red flag. It's not just about getting saved so that you can go to heaven. The gospel, now he's going to tell you the definition, is a full all-encompassing, heart-transforming, culture-shaping message that starts within your heart and works its way out and spreads to the nations and heavenizes the whole world when it is applied to every aspect of culture. End quote. While indeed being on the totally opposite social, cultural, political spectrum of the woke advocate, this person along with Falwell Sr., along with Thomas Harrison from the 17th century, end up making the exact same disastrous mistake that Paul was warning that should never be done in the book of Galatians. They bring alongside and add to the gospel in their pursuit to solve or address the problems of their collapsing postmodern culture, and in the process, they pollute. They mar the perfect masterpiece of the gospel. Beloved, my intent yesterday as I was delivering this message and to you today this morning remains the same. We have no guarantee that there's going to be anything but more darkness overtaking the current culture and society which you and I live in. We have no guarantee of that, but we do have a guarantee of something. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised what? That he would be with us unto the end in the Great Commission to do that which he has charged us to do to preach the good news of the kingdom. It would be so helpful for us at times to be taken up out of our context and dropped over into India where Pastor Sukmar is preaching right now no confused gospel He's preaching the message of reconciliation to save the souls of men. And then, loving your neighbor as yourself, being salt and light in the world, he's preaching the Bible. He's instructing from the book of Ephesians 
how a husband and a father is to lead his family. He's instructing from the book of Ephesians of how a wife is to you know, love her husband and, and raise her children. He's instructing later on in Ephesians of how uh, Christian businessmen are to conduct themselves out in the world. He's preaching the Bible of how to be salt and light in the world, but he's not going to make the mistake in doing all of that of ever daring adding anything like we just read in that quote to the gospel because the gospel has to be pure for it is the power unto salvation. And when we keep it pure, it is what the Holy Spirit will own as his own like an arrow into the heart of God-hating, God-rejecting, postmodern thinkers and turn them from the enemies of Christ to the slaves of Christ. Brothers and sisters, amid collapsing culture, we as the guardians of the gospel, we need to be watchful of the ideas and the ideologies that threaten the purity of its message. And we need to, by God's grace, be prepared with brethren who we believe are erring, according to Galatians later on, chapter 6, with gentleness and meekness, or with those who we believe are not even brethren, we need to be prepared to expose them. Expose them as impurities, even at the cost of being unpopular with others who we may otherwise agree with in many other things. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you Thank you, O Father, for the example we have in the Apostle Paul. Lord, this fire, this zealous jealousy that he had for maintaining the purity of the good news of Christ's kingdom, the glorious reconciliation of lost, depraved sinners being set free, their hearts opened by the supernatural work of your blessed and powerful sovereign spirit so that they see the glory and the love of Christ at the cross. We thank you that you gave the Apostle Paul this zeal, this great love as you branded, O God, the gospel message upon his mind and his heart. And Lord, I pray that Lord, in the midst of legitimate concerns that we have as your church, no matter where we're located on this celestial ball, whether it be here in the United States or whether it be, oh God, in Iran, I pray that we would understand and, oh Lord, that we would believe that as we preach the gospel purely, that your spirit would bless and it, it is indeed the power to save the souls of men. And O oh God, as you sovereignly use the human kingdoms of this world, we bow at your providence, Lord. And we ask you, Lord God, to always protect us and to help us to proclaim this gospel. For we know, Lord, as Christian pilgrims, that our home is not upon a monarchy that will rest its feet on this soil. But in some sense, while there is great mystery involved with it, Oh God, it is in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom is the crown and the glory of all kingdoms. Lord, help us to be faithful ambassadors of the message that he has entrusted us with. Help us to live out this message in our lives, in the world in which we exist. And Lord, we leave the rest of these human kingdoms in thy hands. We ask you to push back and restrain evil. We ask you to lift up and protect your church until 
the very last soul that Christ bled for upon the cross is ushered into your glorious covenant of grace. And thus, subsequently after that, according to 1 Thessalonians, will be the consummation and the end of this age. We look forward toward it. We hope that, Lord, it will come quickly. Prepare our hearts as we tarry here until it comes. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask these things. Amen.